0: Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about combating climate change by talking dirty. And getting down in the dirt with us today are Carol Roselle, and, Carol, hello, Carol. It's great to be here. Carol is, is the uh, market gardener of the New Wendell Farm out in Wendell, Massachusetts. Uh, Carol is Farm Education Director with NOFA, Massachusetts. And also with me is Stephen Caletti, and, hi, Stephen, Hi. Hey, there you How are. How you out. doing? And, and Stephen, um, you're a healthy soil legislative expert, and you're also working with NOFA. Uh, Stephen, what does NOFA stand for?
2: Uh, North, uh, Northeast Organic Farming Association.
1: Right. And so we're going to uh, Carol's a farmer, and, and you're the, uh, our legislative guy on the hill and stuff, so... We're going to start talking farm and getting out in the dirt of farms. And um, so I'm really excited that you guys are here to talk with us on this episode of Morris Environmental Dialogue because to combat climate change, to lessen the impact of this climate crisis we're having, uh, we need to take two actions. We need to reduce the amount of emissions that are, we're, we're releasing uh, we all know about how the buildup of greenhouse gases is wreaking havoc with the planet. We also need to increase the capture of carbon so that uh, we are reclaiming some of this excess gas that's up there, blanketing the planet and causing heat to be returned back into the earth. Um, so, uh, so we're by, to do this. We're going to the farm, right? Right. So. Um, Oh, I got to introduce you too. Yeah. So, Morgan Berman is, uh, and Jesse McIsaac. McKi- uh, I, <laughs> I can see it in my, the words, but I just tripped over my own Scottish words and stuff. Um, so, Jesse and, and Morgan are, uh, are, any day now, will be seniors at Tufts University, and uh, they are our summer interns. Welcome, Morgan. Thank
3: you. It's
1: so good to be here. Welcome, thank you.
3: Jessie.
1: Thank you. I'm going to pass it to Morgan, and she's going to talk farm stuff.
3: Great.
1: Um, thank you so much, Dr. Moyer, for the introduction.
3: Um, <laughs> uh, so first, I will be asking a few questions. Um, I actually had the pleasure in a food systems class I took at Tufts last semester with my professor, Kathy, Dr. Kathy Stanton. Um, I had the pleasure of hearing Carol um, speak a little bit about the topic that we're here to talk about today. Um, specifically farming and carbon sequestration and how it all relates. Um, So, Carol, I'll be lucky to ask you a few questions. Um, So, firstly, just to get into the topic... Great. (laughs) Uh, We're wondering if you could explain to us a little bit about the basics of what um, atmospheric carbon that we think of when we think of
4: climate change has to do with soil and sort of how your work addresses that issue. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, this is a really interesting topic, and I, I feel like it's sort of under understood in the world of um, climate change work, although that's, that's changing really rapidly right now. It's really an active area of study. Um, I want to emphasize that we know very little about this uh, compared to, you know, what we really need to understand about it. So it's, it's an area that's really actively being researched now. Um, so I can tell you, you know, what I know from my own research so far about this, um, and I guess the main one of the main things I want to get across is that you know, so there's a bunch of uh, different scientists and academics who are um, studying this from a lot of different angles. One of those um, scientists is Dr. Ratan Lal at the University of Ohio. Um, he heads up the Soil Carbon Sequestration, um, or sorry, sorry, the University of Ohio Carbon Management and Sequestration Center, which is a really great resource. <laughs> And they've done some meta-analysis about um, sort of historical uh, carbon emissions. And one of the things that they found is that going back to the beginning of agriculture um, about 12,000 years ago, uh, human beings, for as long as we've been farming, have been releasing uh, soil carbon into the atmosphere. And so if you, if you look at our historic carbon emissions, anthropogenic carbon emissions, about two-thirds of our um, anthropogenic carbon emissions have actually been uh, basically soil carbon that we've oxidized through um, our land use conversion for agriculture. Um, wow. in, the, in the last 200 years since uh, the industrial era, um, we've really accelerated that um, conversion of soil organic carbon into atmospheric carbon, and about 33% of our current uh, carbon emissions, um, by some estimates, come from oxidized soil organic carbon. Wow, so like a third. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a lot. It's so a lot a more use than use. than people probably think. Yeah, <laughs> um, but you know, the soil, uh. the world's soils are an incredibly large carbon sink. About 2.5 trillion tons of carbon are held in the top meter of our soils. Um, so it's it's really a large uh, it's a large pool of carbon that we're influencing in terms of our agricultural uh, the soils that we interact with agriculturally. Um, and uh, Eric Tonsmeyer, who wrote a really amazing book called *The Carbon Farming Solution*, which I highly recommend. He's at Yale. Um, he's in his book. He talks. He gets, cites a figure that about um, 1.1 gigatons of carbon um, are released each year uh, due to for- poor farming practices.
3: Great. Um, well, thank you so much for giving us a brief history, sort of, of this discussion of carbon capture. Um, I'm hoping we can uh, focus in a bit on your personal history and industry. Sure. Um, so I understand you began with more mechanized farming and then now are an expert in no-till and more sustainable carbon-sensitive um, farming practices. I'm hoping you can speak a little well, bit you, about Yeah, it. I guess I wouldn't call
4: myself an expert. I'm just someone who's, I guess <laughs> I would say I'm more of a nerd <laughs> about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I um, apprenticed on an organic farm or multiple organic farms. Uh, I had started out in sort of working on Community food security uh, at a nonprofit level. When I graduated from Bard College, I don't have a science background. I have more of an um, economics and ethics background. But um, so I was working in uh, community food security um, and decided to become a farmer. So, like many people, I went and apprenticed on various farms. <clears throat> and in that time, you know, I was mostly working on organic uh, mechanized farms. So in the you know fifteen to thirty acres in cultivation. Uh, area, um, and so driving around on tractors, you have a lot of time to think, and I was noticing things um, such as, you know, in our tilled fields, we would have the same weeds or the same plant species growing in the tilled fields as we would in the um, in the roadways the or the areas between the fields where we would drive tractors down or cars or trucks, um, so just mm-hmm. sort of grassy strips. But the grass um, and the lamb's quarters and, um, you know, the pigweed and whatever weeds were growing there, um, I noticed were really tall, a lot taller in the roadways, a lot healthier looking, less discolored um, Mm -hmm. than the the weeds that were growing up in the uh, fallow-tilled fields. Um, And that's despite the fact that they had trucks driving over them all the time. So I started to wonder what that was about. I also noticed things like, you know, Crops with a moderate, low to moderate weed pressure seemed to be healthier than the crops that were uh, bare soil cultivated, um, that, you know, had tractors going on them that would just sort of, like, cut the weeds away. Uh, so the, tr- the weeds, mm-hmm. the crops that were growing without a mild weed pressure around them seemed to be just kind of a little bit more wilty. They didn't seem to grow as fast or as healthfully. They didn't seem to resist pest as well, pests as well and diseases. So I started to mm-hmm. wonder about what was going on there. Um, and that sort of led me down the path to finding more out more about alternative, um, alternative approaches to, to farming beyond um, cultivation or bare soil tillage-based farming.
3: Right. Um, um, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, do you have any examples or any people in particular you could point to as um, pioneers of the no-till farming movement um, or anything yeah. you could talk about on that?
4: Absolutely, yeah. So the first person that I came across um, when I was starting on this journey, I started to listen to podcasts on those tractors, and uh, I was listening to the Permaculture Voices podcast, which is a, a really fabulous podcast, and I heard an interview with uh, Jean-Martin Fortier, um, who wrote The Market Gardener, um, which is which a really successful book, and he had essentially taken Elliot Coleman's uh, some of Elliot Coleman's concepts and um, applied them to sort of a one-acre farm. And what he was doing that was really new and innovative, I thought, was that he was using silage tarps instead of tillage to clear weeds. So uh, at the end of his growing season, rather than you know, pulling out all of his crops and um, tilling up the soil, um, he would pull a silage tarp uh, across the, his field um, and leave it for the winter. And then in the spring, he would just pull it back and plant right into that. And so he had found a way... The salad tarp essentially uh, occultated is the, is the phrase we use, but uh, essentially blocked out light from, um, you know, reaching the surface of the soil. So the weeds, when they germinated... Um, would be deprived of light and would just die. So then he had this perfect clear um, area to plant into. He was also using permanent raised beds, um, so he wasn't running any equipment down those beds, um, so he Mm -hmm. wasn't compacting them. And then he was also adding a lot of compost. And this system, using this system, he was able to plant um, really densely, but he had enough soil health, and soil nutrition um, present from the compost and from the reduced tillage, or or really no tillage, that he was able to plant much more densely and still achieve high levels of crop health. Um, And he was also just seeing phenomenal um, weed and uh, disease and pest resistance in his system. And he wasn't spending Mm -hmm. as much time weeding because when you, you know, When you've basically buried your weed seed bank by adding compost and then not tilling, when you till, you're sort of bringing up weed seeds, Uh, he was Mm -hmm. really able to focus on just planting and harvesting and not have to spend so much time weeding. And through this system, he was just seeing really high levels of soil health as well as really high profit margins. So at the time that I came across him, he was reporting a 45% profit margin, which is really unheard of in terms of farming because uh, farmers tend to operate with really small margins.
3: Wow. Um, so it sounds like he provided a win-win soil health model. Um, I'm wondering also if you would mind going into and not so much detail, because not everyone listening is a scientist. Um, but um, what a healthy soil environment looks like and what some of the healthy mm-hmm. soil practices or principles of healthy soil are. Yeah, healthy absolutely.
4: So really, um, when we want to think about soil health, what we and also you know, carbon, soil carbon sequestration. What we really want to be focused on is how we can increase the life in the soil um, and also how we can be increasing photosynthesis. Because one of the things that's been misunderstood about um, soil organic matter, it's it's sort of been thought of as like this dead part of the soil or the the part of the soil that was a living thing, but then it decomposed and now it's just this inert organic matter, right? Um, But what we're now sort of understanding through advances in microbiology is that Um, there might not be anything that exactly is soil organic matter. It might just be that what we think of as soil organic matter is actually just made up of all of these organisms because decomposition itself is a living process, right? So Mm -hmm. really, soil organic matter just actually refers to the living portion of the soil. And carbon is the common element of all life. Carbon has a bad reputation in climate change communities because we primarily associate it with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But in, mm-hmm. in farming communities and in soil health communities, carbon is thought of as really valuable because um, when it's present in the soil, it improves soil function in a number of ways. Um, and the primary way that, soil, that carbon actually gets into the soil is not through decomposition because in decomposition of crop residues and you know, formerly living things on the surface of the soil, about, a, about two-thirds of the carbon is lost to the atmosphere through decomposition. But photosynthesis is how carbon really gets into the soil. Um, Because photosynthesis is the conversion of carbon dioxide and water plus energy into carbohydrates and oxygen. Mm -hmm. And what's really key about this process is that a photosynthesizing plant is taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, is turning it into Mm -hmm. a complex carbon molecule, and then it's feeding it to the life in the soil. So some of the life in the soil is certainly they're decomposing, formerly living things, but a lot of the life in the soil is actually directly feeding on the carbohydrates that the plants are giving out through their their roots into the root zone and feeding microbiology in the soil. And then, so one of the primary ways that happens is actually through arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. And this Mm -hmm. is one of the things that's really been um, lacking in a lot of our uh, industrial farming systems is because industrial farming is so uh, tillage-based for the most part. What Mm -hmm. we now understand is that because fungi, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, exist, the the main part of their physiology is as fine strands of hyphae in the soil. The mushroom is just the fruiting body or just the reproductive organ. Um, but mm-hmm. when you till up soil, you're really breaking up those strands. You're destroying the body of the fungi, which, which looks a little bit like a very fine root structure in the soil. Um, right. And those mycorrhizal fungi are taking those, those carbohydrates in the plants and then they're feeding it out to bacteria and other organisms in the soil. And this is essentially what we mean when we talk about the soil food web. And what we really want to be thinking about with healthy soils practices is how can we increase the soil food web and increase the amount of life that's in the soil. And to do that, there's some principles. Um, so the first principle would be, you know, like we say in medicine, first do no harm, reduce disturbance. So um, that means stop turning over the soil and tilling it up so much. Because when you do that, again, it's fundamentally antagonistic to the physiology of our muscular mycorrhizal fungi. Um, it's very mm-hmm. damaging to the soil biology. Um, so first, reduce your disturbance. Second, okay. keep the soil covered. Um, sorry, did you say something? Oh, no. We're just listening. Okay. okay. Um, second, keep the soil covered. Um, so that can mean mulching. That can mean, um, you know, like keeping a landscape fabric down, like Jean-Martin Fortier uses silage tarps. Um, but ideally, it's a cover crop. So the next principle is keep living roots in the ground as much of the year as possible. Because living roots are what are, do, are pumping that carbon into the soil from the atmospheric carbon. Uh, it's living roots mm-hmm. that are doing photosynthesis, right, or or moving the photosynthetic products into the soil ecosystem. And the last part is increase your biodiversity. The different fungi that live in the soil and the different um, micro- uh, microbes in the soil have different relationships with different plant families. And so when we increase our surface plant biodiversity we're increasing the below-ground biodiversity at the same time. And as we know from basic ecological learning, um, (sighs) biodiverse systems are more resilient than uh, simple ones, right? So those are the main principles uh, for practices. And then really all the practices that are being developed for healthy soils um, really derive from those, those principles. Go ahead. Um, great. Uh, well,
3: thank you so much. That was an excellently thorough description of the principles of healthy soil. Um, so thank you. And healthy soil practices. Um, and we were just hoping to conclude this um, portion of the podcast. If we could talk a little bit about the Jena experiment and sorry. how... Can you, uh, um, sorry, JINNA can you repeat that? Yeah, yeah. of course. Uh, we were hoping we could touch a little bit on the findings of the Jena experiment and how oh, those... Oh, the experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
4: great. So this is an experiment in Germany. Um, it's over 10 years old. Um, it's just hundreds of different plots um, that have various different species compositions. It's mostly, it's sort of like in a grassland area of, um, of uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Jena or Jena, um, <laughs> but you can look it up. It's J-E-N-A. Um, and this ex- so just search the, the Jena experiment. There's a lot of great videos and resources about this. But some of the findings of this experiment were that um, the more biodiverse the plot that they planted out, so, you know, again, there's species ranging from just one species in these plots to, you know, tens of different species. The more biodiverse the plot was, um, mm-hmm. the more carbon and nitrogen that plot has sequestered in the soil and built in the soil over, the, um, over 10 years of the experiment, um, which mm-hmm. is a really key finding. And again, carb- I should point out also that carbon um, and nitrogen are tied in the soil um, because uh, soil organic matter um, is very effective at holding nutrients in the soil. So you know, nitrogen is, is better able to be built up and held in the soil when it's high in carbon or soil organic matter. Um, the other interesting finding of that study was um, they had an extreme weather event um, at the uh, experiment site And they found that the plots that had a greater biodiversity um, bounced back and recovered from that extreme weather event much more quickly um, than the really simple plots. Um, And so the finding there was that climate resilience um, really follows from biodiversity
1: as well.
3: Um, Well, thank you so much. Um, I think that concludes this section of the podcast.
1: There we go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We need to take a short break. Um, And unfortunately... Uh, Morgan has to head off to an appointment that yeah. just came up, so awesome. um, we're going to bid you adieu, Morgan, yeah. and thank you. It's been a pleasure being part of this conversation. Thank you, everyone, who tuned in, and thank you, Stephen and Carol, and we'll see you guys soon. And for nice great questions. Uh, great questions, yes. Uh, when we come back, uh, Stephen's going to talk more about uh, moving through the legislative process, This important agricultural practices that Carol has been talking about. After
5: this break. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org
0: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at one 472 5788 Again, that's one 472 5788 You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're
1: talking about Combating climate change by talking dirty. We've been getting into the soils of farms and agriculture and learning that instead of turning over the field, if you just put a tarp over it, you won't get the weeds coming out anyways. And uh, other fascinating tips and tricks um, and more about the science of agriculture. Uh, Kara, how can people learn more about uh, the work of NOFA and the work that you're doing?
4: Sure, yeah, um, people can go to nofamass.org, that's N-O-F-A-M-A-S-S dot O-R-G, um, and if you'd like to hear more, if you want to correspond with me about, you know, um, having your, your uh, soil assessed for its, um, you know, carbon sequestering capacity, if you're a small farmer um, or even a large farmer, you can reach me at caro, C-A-R-O, at nofamass.org.
1: Well, that's
4: simple enough. I should also mention we have two conferences a year. We always have a soil health track um, with a combination of um, scientists and farmer practitioners um, talking about the practices of of soil carbon sequestration. Um, So that's the NOFA Mass Winter Conference and the NOFA Summer Conference, which is coming up on August 10th and 11th, and that's held at Hampshire College out here in Western Mass, um, and it's a really fabulous event. So people can check that out at org.
1: Thank you. Um, yeah, I recommend that. As, a, as an alumni at Hampshire College, I recommend the, checking out the farm program they have there, see how the Dutch-belted mm-hmm. cattle are doing and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, they always do oh. a nice livestock demo. Yeah, good livestock. So that's that's one half of it. And then the other half is the legislative side of things of how to... Uh, help farmers be able to um, bring their wishes about by getting support from the state, and uh, for that we're turning to Stephen. Uh, tell us. Although I'm going to hand it over to um, Jesse, who's going to um, talk to Stephen about legislation.
3: Hi, this is Jesse here, and I'm talking with Stephen Kelly uh, about legislation surrounding healthy soil initiatives. So I just wanted to jump off with
2: asking about how you got started with Healthy Soils in the first place. How did I get involved with um, Healthy Soils? Well, um, I was involved with uh, doing some citizen-initiated legislation in, in Massachusetts before, and I was um, a delegate to the Cambridge Climate Congress uh, in October of of uh, 2016. And um, I met some people working on soil health. I'd kind of sort of heard about it and... Um, asked if it had considered writing legislation or if there's any legislation to support soil health and they said no and so I thought I'd, I'd said I'd give it a shot and so I drafted uh, initial draft um, yeah, for the 2017 uh, uh, 2018 session and um, I presented it to my uh, uh, representatives and instead of doing it as a by request which is usually how citizen initiate legislation is in um, Massachusetts, uh, he said, oh, this is a really good bill. And so he um, helped get it be filed, and uh, it did very well last session, but didn't get over the finish line. And so um, during that whole process, though, I um, realized that it was important to have legislation across the country in order to make things move forward. So that's how I got involved with this, was um, through uh, a chance meeting at the Climate Congress in Cambridge. Wow.
3: So what does it mean exactly to have healthy soil legislation? What specific actions does this policy call for?
2: Um, well, I, I realized from my experience with other legislation that um, uh, legislators and staff don't really get any bonus points for looking into things that's not on the legislative agenda. Um, so what healthy soils legislation primarily does in the state's um, is to change the laws so that the soil and water conservation districts um, have soil health or somewhere else in the law define soil health. So it's actually in the law defined. and um, it's various states have different other additional parts to it to um, actually either create a program or to study or uh, create a uh, advisory, Commission to create a Healthy Soils Plan. So the legislation can be of different types, uh, but essentially all of them bring attention to soil health and help attract funding for state programs to create action plans and have pilot programs for soil health.
3: Great. Great. So, you said that this is happening not just locally, but nationwide. Um, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about where things in this healthy soil legislation are at and what is happening, what's been happening across the country within the last two years.
2: Well, um, uh, California has had, had the biggest win. In 2017, they, have, they had their healthy soils bill. They had a cap uh, uh, trade bill that essentially provided funding. For uh, various in, uh, environmental programs, including uh, soil health, so they had the uh, Healthy Soils Initiative program. So they're the, they're the big one of the earliest and biggest. I mean, there were other smaller bills for uh, carbon sequestration uh, in 2001. When there's the uh, 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 carbon sequestration uh, cap and trade bill at the federal level, there was an expectation from the marquee, uh, uh bill back then that there would be some sort of carbon market. So in Oklahoma, they had a a bill in 2001, uh, legislation in 2001. Mm -hmm. Vermont had some soil carbon sequestration in 2008. So um, there's been those few uh, states. Maryland has passed a bill uh, a couple years ago, but it hasn't gotten funding. Um, And then this session, New Mexico passed a, a Healthy Soils uh, bill as well as Nebraska for creating a, a, a plan in Nebraska. So we've had a lot of movement recently. Last year, we only had bills in three states, um, Massachusetts, Vermont, and, and, um, and Connecticut, uh, working towards, you know, so Vermont, Massachusetts, and, and, um, uh, uh yeah, I think it was Massachusetts. Sorry, I'm getting confused. And then um, this year we had 10, so to be more clear, because that was old news. This year we had, across uh, the country, uh, 10 different states had legislation. Thus far we've had passage of the bills in Nebraska and New Mexico.
3: Wow, well, that's really that's great news. Um, for our local listeners, we were wondering what exactly... Uh, has been the course of this healthy soil legislation in Massachusetts and what that looks like.
2: Um, we've already had... So the bill was a little bit updated from last session because of, you know, uh, feedback. Um, we've realized over time with a lot of other states that um, regenerative agriculture, what uh, Cara was talking about, regenerating the soil through uh, regenerative practices, the term... Um, has different meanings to different farmers. And so uh, in the organic farming community, a lot of people feel that the term regenerative agriculture really is more for beyond organic to really be regenerating the soil because one can be doing organic practices but not rebuilding the soil necessarily. Um, And uh, conventional industrial farmers um, see the term as being identified with organic farming and sort of, they feel a little judged, maybe. They feel like they're being um, told they need to go to organic, whereas both conventional industrial agricultural people and organic farmers both have a, a similar response to the uh, an understanding of healthy soils. Everyone supports soil health because we've lost um, between a half and two-thirds of our agricultural soil, and it's estimated that we have only about 60 crop cycles, 60 years of um, farming left before these uh, soils are depleted, so our food supply, our food security is at risk if we do not start uh, rebuilding the soil.
3: Well, this is um, definitely a pressing issue that's great you're focusing on. Um, And you talked a little bit about the contention behind using the term regenerative. I was wondering what other resistance this policy has faced either locally or
2: nationwide? Um, uh, We haven't really seen much resistance to these bills. Um, uh, The bill in New Mexico had bipartisan support and was unanimously voted through the Senate before it was signed by the governor this year. Um, The um, bills in uh, uh, Nebraska were bipartisan. The the bill in Massachusetts has bipartisan support. And I've not seen any testimony or opposition to the bills. So, um, I think, um, most of what we're finding is just, uh, inertia is the resistance. Um, people don't necessarily understand the benefits of healthy soils, both as, in terms of profitability of farms and the benefits. Um, and so once they do understand it, generally there is support. So, um, because there's all these eco-service benefits. There's ecosystem services of, of, of storm uh, water resi- uh, management because the healthy soils are more, have a higher infiltration rate, so they absorb the water rather than it running off. So healthy soils help with storm water mitigation. They help because the, the soil adds more of a sponge. It holds more water, so there's greater drought resilience. Um, there's, uh, as Carl was mentioning, there's... Uh, much more a nitrogen efficiency, so one may need maybe a tenth the amount of fertilizers, so there's uh, uh, less need for application of various amendments. Um, so almost everywhere you look around, it's, there's positives. The biggest problem generally is the transition from the conventional methods to the healthy soils methods because the soil needs to heal and recover, and sometimes a rocky road, uh, in terms of production and uh, and and getting the same profits during that transition period.
3: And you mentioned a really important part of this program is kind of education and outreach to get people to know why this is important. How have you been approaching this kind of uh, awareness uh, part of the policy?
2: Um, well, what we do in, in all the states that I've been working in is first reaching out to the most obvious people who have been working in this for a long time, which is the soil and water conservation districts and the organic farming community. Um, but once once one gets connected with those or the watershed associations, essentially giving the, the materials to those organizations and helping promote that through their networks and through their contacts with legislators um, to... Um, be aware of the situation. That's essentially what helped us in Massachusetts get um, a $100,000 grant to create a Massachusetts Healthy Soils Action Plan, which was just uh, kicked off recently, an 18-month program. Uh, And that plan wouldn't have happened without the legislation um, drawing attention to the need for uh, improving soil health in the state. Well, that's that's really
3: great. And has this Massachusetts 18-a-month action plan been involved with your work with NOFA. Um, wondering if you could speak a little bit on that. I think
2: Carl probably can speak more on that, but it's it's um, mostly been uh, they're very involved with the, the, the people that are uh, running the, uh, the work on the action plan, and um, I'm somewhat involved with the uh, help with working on the the proposal, or at least being part of the proposal, mm-hmm. that won. So, um, it's is a definite process. I think I think Carol can answer that. I don't know if Carol wants to jump on and answer Sorry, that yep. now. Or. I can
4: I can say a little bit about that. Um, so the uh, it was an RFP process, um, which uh, was I don't remember exactly when it was released, but um, you know Marty, who's our policy director, Marty De- degoberto and myself. Um, were listed um, as part of the advisory team on the um, proposal that did win. Uh, so the, pro- the project is being led by the Regenerative Design Group, which is um, sort of a, a permaculture and land, land use solutions firm, um, uh, sort of like a, a, planning a land planning firm out of uh, Greenfield, Massachusetts, a really great team of people. Um, and we also have an organization called the Linnean Solutions, which is in, uh, based in Cambridge. Um, and Eric Tonsmeyer, as well as um, an expert on uh, landscape planning, are involved on the advisory team. And the process is over 18 months, um, we're putting together a working group, um, which is a large group of people who represent different stakeholders, so we've got uh, UMass Extension and NRCS representatives and um, different soil health groups and conservation districts uh, representatives in the working group. And essentially the the project is to inventory the land use practices in the state um, and come up with a comprehensive plan for the Commonwealth to um, reduce erosion, uh, carbon emissions, um, and improve production and carbon storage um, and resilience to extreme weather events for the, the state's soils. Um, and the plan will also uh, support policymakers and regulators um, and administrators in shaping sort of future um, soil health related efforts and policies in the Commonwealth. Um, so people can find out more about this process at um, the website for the Regenerative Design Group. Um, so that's just regenerativedesigngroup.com backslash Massachusetts Healthy Soils Action Plan. That's and we'll be holding some listening sessions for stakeholders to show up and share your, your feedback. So um, keep an eye on the NOFA Mass website and their website to um, hear about when you can join a meeting to to give your, your thoughts and hear about
1: updates. And the NOFA site is, again?
4: NOFAMass.org.
1: Thank you. So
4: we'll be posting um, updates on those there as well.
1: Yes. Yeah. So we're going to need to take a... We've to away the time, we take another quick break, and we'll be right back to talk more about healthy soils in Massachusetts and beyond after this break.
0: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science.
5: On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to moyer's environmental dialogues to participate in today's discussion you're welcome to call into the program at one 472 5788 again that's one 472 5788 you can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. now back to dr rob moyer So this is Jesse
3: again, and I just wanted to ask Stephen two more questions while we finish up this program. Um, So I would like to hear a little bit more about where do we go from this Massachusetts
2: Healthy Soil Bill? Um, Well, right now the bill, it's it's under two names because it was filed both in the Senate and the House. It's Senate number 438 and House Bill 873, and uh, it's right now in the Environment, Natural Resources, and Agriculture Committee. Uh, it, had, it had its first hearing very early in a session, which is promising, as you know, support. So say, contacting one's legislators and, and saying that they want their support for uh, and passage of the Healthy Soils Bill would really help because I think, uh, especially in leadership, they want to see broad support for a bill. So I, I, it really is important. For uh, legislators to hear from their constituents in support of the bill.
3: So that kind of answers my next question, which is, how else can people learn more about this program, which we've kind of talked about, and what can people like us do to make a difference?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I think it's uh, uh, important to you know um, not only talk with the legislators, but also to become more educated about. It. There's various materials out there if you just even just Google for uh, Healthy Soils. Um, the biggest thing right now, I think, is supporting for funding. We really tried this last uh, session to have um, uh, appropriation for uh, uh, a Healthy Soils pilot program that Carol worked on, and I think that uh, we, it's, we'd we rather have a multi-year of funding. We didn't get funding in this uh, budget, but uh, maybe there's an opportunities in the rest of the session. So People can actually help also by maybe reaching out to to um NOFA or myself to um to get connected with other people to help.
1: Um yeah, I also really want to add big. that
4: oh, sorry. <laughs> Um, I wanna also add that uh by becoming a member of NOFA Mass you can help support our policy work because um Stevens and working closely with our policy director, um, Marty Dagoberto and um you know all of our policy work at NOFA is is funded through our membership. Um
1: so yeah, just a little plug. <laughs> yeah, and does NOFA have hill days where you guys go off the hill or something?
4: Yeah, we do. We have um I forget what we call those, that's a great but yeah, way we to have.
1: Get so I know. Right, I we often part of that.
4: call for folks to come up and give testimony. Um, so yeah, that's another great way um, to get involved. And Marty puts out action requests for those things through our newsletter and our uh, list and our Facebook. So um, just you know, it'd be great to follow our Facebook page for those kinds of um, action alerts. And, I, and
2: I've this been working exciting. with. NOFA, I've been working with the NOFAs across the Northeast because NOFA chapters are throughout the Northeast. And so even if you know people in other states, there's uh, a lot of work in in the rest of the Northeastern states from Pennsylvania up through Maine to have similar legislation uh, on the docket in 2020.
1: And if you want to really know what's going on, attend your conference this summer. When is that?
4: Um, That is uh, August 10th and 11th at Hampshire College.
1: Yeah, that's the um, And we actually, conference.
4: we will probably, yes, yeah, so we'll have a, an organizing workshop there as well as at our winter conference, um, which is in January. So uh, those are also great so opportunities yeah, so to connect with I, other like-minded folks.
1: You'll have to look in the barns for the livestock that time of year, but it's worth yeah. it so you <laughs> have to reconnect the farm before you go talk in the hill because uh, legislators love talking to constituents who, have had their hands in the dirt, let's say. you know. So it's, it's it's a death of both worlds. For those of us who live in the urban areas, give us a reason to come visit a farm so we can be more educated to go walk the hills and, and uh, persuade this uh, important legislation to promote healthy soils. It's, this is not an expensive bill, is
2: it? It's not an expensive bill to get started. A lot of states um, do put millions of dollars towards healthy soils because there's so much bang for the buck in terms of uh, ecosystem services that we take for granted. It avoids a lot of infrastructure repairs. Like in Vermont, they had a lot of flood damage. And the idea is by having better uh, infiltration rates, there can be a lot of mitigation of flood damage, for example, and dealing with uh, peak storm events that are becoming more and more a problem because of climate change. Right. There's two sides to that. One
1: is that you don't need a lot of money to pass the bill and the other is that a little bit of money will go a long way because of all the natural services that you're talking about here. So this is a, a very good bill to put through.
4: Another uh, way that um, this kind of work would impact farmers locally in Massachusetts is, um, I don't know if folks who are not in the farming community are aware, but we had a really severe drought uh, in 2016 um or was it 2017? I can't remember now. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah so we had a, a severe drought year followed by a severe wet year. Um, and I know that there were a lot of uh, emergency loans that MDAR had to make to farmers in the community who uh, suffered the double whammy of a, of a drought year and then a, um, a severe wet year. And I know that for some of the farmers in the Pioneer Valley, the crop losses actually from the really wet year were even higher than the drought year. Um, and so, yeah. healthy soils practices can really help mitigate those weather extremes. The soil just responds; uh, it can, you know, it can hold water in a drought year, and it can better drain the water in a in a wet year. So, those kinds of um, healthy soils practices will really increase the resiliency of our farms as we face increasing climate
1: disturbance. That's, it's so amazing. The more natural you do your farming, the more the plants are able to, you know, retain the moisture during wet. Uh, you know, into dry period and um, vice versa. Uh, should, mm-hmm. You know, nature's pretty smart. They figured this stuff out long ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, if really... you do, if you
4: have a yard or a garden, um, if you're so lucky, then you can certainly do some things at home to also uh, make sure that the the soil, the little patch of soil that you manage, is healthy. Um, Make sure that your are uh, if you hire a landscaper, make sure that your landscaper is an organic landscaper because um, pesticides and herbicides and fungicides are very damaging to the soil microbial community that we were talking about. Um, you can cut your lawn a little higher. Um, you know, really low-cut lawns uh, tend to not build as robust root systems. Um, if you're doing your own sort of lawn management, I think you've talked about this on a previous podcast, that's sort of getting away from quick-release fertilizers um, most of the most of the nitrogen is being lost from those fertilizers into our water system. Um, and use things like compost, or um, you know, if you have a, a source of manure from if you're living in a rural area, then you know, compost your manure and add that to your lawn instead. All of these different ways of um, reducing uh, nitrogen loss um, and increasing soil organic matter will improve the ecosystem function of your property. Um, Also, I just want to put a little plug for putting in some native plants in your property because uh, we're really facing a lot of uh, alarming uh, insect population declines, and we really need to be supporting our native insect populations. So it's great to work with either a landscaper who's interested in native plants or, uh, you know, go to a workshop and get some native plants for your garden.
1: Yeah, and if you get more butterflies, that's really cool to see, too.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, since i put a lot of uh, native plants into my um, small farm as buffers around my vegetable growing areas, I've been starting to see some really amazing wildlife that I didn't see before when it was mostly just grass. Um, Like hummingbird moths, those things are amazing. They're like this giant moth that um, looks just like a hummingbird (laughs) when you see it flying around.
1: (laughs) Yeah, people are concerned about bees. Can we do plantings to help the bees?
4: Yeah, we should be really concerned about our native bees, too, and a lot of native bees are actually ground nesting, so um, one of the benefits of tillage reduction on farms uh, and gardens is that if you don't turn over your soil in the springtime, um, you're not destroying those nests of those native ground nesting bees. You give them a chance to emerge from the soil, um, you know, in the springtime.
1: Well, that is huge, considering the size of patches we're overturning, that's, Significant yep. step forward for the bees.
4: Wow. Yeah, and, you know, native ground nesting bees are actually attracted to patches of bare soil because it's easier for them to, to get at. So um, when you have, like, a big uh, bare field, um, I'm, I'm concerned that that's those uh, bare, bare agricultural fields are attracting a lot of our native bees who are then getting um, destroyed in the spring with, when tillage happens.
1: Oh, my gosh. Like a big trap. Wow, Um, you've given us a lot to think about, and um, and thank you. Um, If if you need if people need help in connecting with promoting this bill or uh, in uh, connecting with uh, uh, Kara's and Stephen's work with uh, NOFA, uh, you're welcome to uh, uh, visit our website and also to email me. Uh, Also, if you want to uh, communicate with um, Jesse and Morgan here, um, at least for these 12 weeks that they're interning. Um, uh, the email is rob at oceanriver.org. Uh, if you want to you know, if you have further questions, you want me to forward to people or uh, connect you with the legislators and information on the bill that we'll have posted on our... Well, we don't have it posted on our website, so go to NOFA for that. David, um, uh, do you have some closing words for legislation?
2: Um, if people want to reach me um, to help, they can email me as well. Uh, first initial, last name, uh, S K E L E T I uh, at Comcast dot net. And Tara, um,
4: I just hope to see you at one of our NoFA Mass events to, to learn more about this really rich world of uh, healthy soils and um, you know healthy uh, healthy growing food growing environments.
1: Thank you. That's all the time we have for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Until next time, please take care, and then take a moment to take some care of this planet. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.